Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people and others in the autism community to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Something that we have discussed a few times on Autism Stories is web accessibility for those on the spectrum. In this episode, we talk with Shay Belsky, a software engineer who works to make these websites more accessible, not just for the majority, but for anyone and everyone that visits them. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Shay, thanks for joining us on Autism Stories today. Thanks for having me, Doug. I'm super excited to be here and to meet you and to talk to you. Where where does your story um, in the autism community begin? Sure. So I was diagnosed with autism, Asperger's, which is now part of the autism diagnosis nowadays, very young. So I had everything under the sun in terms of services very young. I had an IEP, physical therapy, speech therapy. I had a classroom aid. I had pretty much everything you can imagine in the American school system. I started like growing out of some of those things over time. I think in high school, the only thing that I had was an aid my freshman year. And then I saw someone like just to check in and say hi once a month, like in my senior year, it was just like checking in with somebody every so often. And it wasn't really anything magnificent. But in that senior year, I sort of realized like, okay, I want to sort of figure some of this stuff out and get my bearings on life and put myself in a direction for long-term success. And when I did that, I'm like, what's the one thing that's going to help me get better? And of course, I did one of the most typical things anybody can do. And I, I became a teaching assistant. I went to Cornell. And so when I was a freshman at Cornell, I'm like, oh my gosh, these TAs are so cool and so smart. And they're doing all the things I want to get better at. And so I signed up to be a TA, web development class it was. And that ran me through everything, like how to resolve conflict, how to be a leader, how to grade stuff, how to deal with people who are telling you something you don't want to hear. Like it just sort of goes through everything in the sense of doing things that you really don't want to do, but I got better at it over time. Ultimately, I just kept TAing for the rest of my time at Cornell from sophomore year on. I really just enjoyed that experience. Towards the end of my time at Cornell, I joined uh, a student group of individuals with disabilities. It was called CUDA, Cornell Union for Disability Awareness. And it was a really cool experience for me to sort of use my social network, my connections, and other things that I had known about to advocate for individual disabilities at Cornell and the Ithaca community um, and make sort of make things better for others, especially those people who might not advocate for themselves or for others. And that was my time at Cornell. And then more recently, I've been involved with organizations. Disability Inn is one of them. I went to their conference two years ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. And I went to their conference and really connected with a network of lots of other people in the broader disability community as well, many of whom have physical disabilities, mental disabilities, chronic illnesses, and other things. That was a really big like eye-opener for me. Like There's this whole community of people who are really involved 
with this universe of advocacy and improving the lives and experiences of other people. I just happened to be in the autism universe, so to speak, but there was so much more out there and that really excited me. And it was something I sort of kept doing beyond that point. And as recently as this past March, right, literally like a week or so before the pandemic really hit everyone, I saw a LinkedIn post about this organization called Mentra, which is in the process of building a hiring platform for individuals with autism and other disabilities. And I'm like, wow, this is like right up my alley. And I've been involved in them ever since. And that's my story mm. up, to, up until like right now when I'm still working with them. Now, you, you mentioned that you went to Cornell. You have a bachelor's and master's degree from Cornell in, uh, in information science, uh, concentrating in user experience. Where does your interest in information science, particularly in the user experience uh, part, come from? User experience is a very interesting field because it's very universal, not just in technology, but everywhere. If you think of a door handle on a car, like, when you see a door handle on a car, you intuitively know that there's only one way to use that door handle, and it's to pull it out. You would typically not try to push it in unless it was some sort of fancy car. But user experience is all about how do we design things in the world. In, in my case, it's focused on technology, but it's not limited to that. But how do we design and develop things that require the least amount of brain power as possible? When you see a door handle, that sort of juts out your instinct is to pull. But I'm sure everybody listening to this has had an experience of a door where you think it's a pull door, but it's a push <laughs> door, or vice versa. Right. If you imagine like doors in a hospital or like push doors with that metal plate or that push device, you can only push those. You would never attempt to pull those doors. You have nowhere to pull them on. And what I do, what I've studied in user experience for technology is really like, how do we improve the experiences for people, mostly on the web, but what I've learned and what I've studied really goes a lot beyond that. Because I'll just like, whenever I bring up the concept of the door, it just blows people's minds. If you want to look it up, it's called the Norman door. And I guarantee people listening to this right now that you have experienced a Norman door at least once in your life. And now that I have identified it to you, you will never be able to unsee them. I can't fix them for you, but now you know that they're out there. <laughs> um, and especially as it relates to autism, to my disability, it's really about, I have this unique perspective for individuals with autism who deal with experiences that are tailored to the majority of people, to the majority of individuals on the web and in the world. But there are some difficulties and issues that people like me have with websites, with technology, with other things that often don't get addressed. It just sort of like fall to the wayside. I bring this perspective in and I say, oh, have you considered this? Have you considered that? Can we do this? And you'd be like, oh, we didn't think of that. Because I have autism, my, my voice, I guess my opinion, is more meaningful in these conversations because I have this perspective and this background. I'm not attempting to speak on behalf of everybody, but I'm speaking on behalf of my experiences which have this lens or filter on top of them. I can't tell you how many times with a door I've pulled when I should have pushed. I, I hope there's not someone out there like counting because I know that number is way too high. Once you see it, like once you see it, you have, and the problem is you have to remember that this particular door, especially if it's a door you interact with frequently, you have to remember this. And these are things you should not have to remember. Like if you ever come across these doors, 
It's not, it's not your fault. It's the door's fault. It's the people who built the door. It's the people who put it in the frame. They walked through it. They said, this is perfectly fine and walked away. And they got their paycheck and they did everything they were supposed to do. But if it's upside down, backwards, whatever, like, it's just, it, it, it's frustrating to me seeing how often these things come up in reality. And now imagine how it must feel when you're on a website and you, you let's just say you're going through a website and there's a button. You cl- and this button is like loading you to the next page and you click it and nothing happens. And you click it another 10 or 20 times just to be sure. It's the same thing. Like things should tell you what they're going to do before you do them. And user experience is a huge part of that, whether it's a door, whether it's a button, or whether it's something more complex. So there should be better d- instructions for all of these things. Yeah, like in UX are called affordances or feedback. Affordances is like something that says, when you interact with me, I am going to do this thing. So a car door handle is, a, is an easy example. The affordance that's built, there is universal across almost every single car door, re- modern car doors ever. And there's just such a it's such a distinctive shape and interaction that you would only ever expect interact with it in this way. When you open a car door, it'll open the door. You'll hear the lights come on in the car. Maybe it'll start beeping if it's like the, if there's a driver's seat. You, as a driver, passenger, whatever, expect a series of things to happen when you open the door. And you also know that if you don't hear these things, something's wrong. Let's say you open the door and you don't hear anything. There's no lights. Your battery could be dead, or something could be wrong with the car. Um, you pull on a door, but it doesn't open. Your car is locked. There's so many different things that you expect to happen when interacting with this particular thing. And if none of those things happen, it's confusing. When you open a car door, you don't expect the trunk to be opened if you're opening <laughs> a passenger door. I don't know of any car that does that right now, and I'm sure that if they existed, people would be very confused. But it's all about signaling or giving feedback or affordances to what is supposed to happen when this other thing occurs or when this is interacted with. And when you go back to web design for a loading button, like when you click on it, you expect to be told like the state of the action. If you're checking out on a website and you hit the checkout button, you should expect it to say loading, 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 and eventually you get a confirmation, you get an email or a text, and you expect things to happen. And when that doesn't happen, you're confused. And confusion is the probably one of the worst states you can be in in that sense. You're like, why did this happen, or why didn't this happen? Right. And I think with individuals of autism, it matters so much more, because when we deal with things that don't work the way we expect them to, sometimes our reactions can be a bit stronger than others. And this has happened to me all the time, where I'm just like, but why? Like, I expect this thing to happen, but something else happened, or something else didn't happen, and it just gets frustrating and annoying, and we're sort of, we, I have personally just been so frustrated, especially like recently when it's just like, why? Like, who thought this was a good idea? And I can only imagine for other individuals, it's even more of a strong reaction than it is for me at times. Maybe thinking about like specifically autistic and neurodiverse folks, um, I know you were mentioning about like the, you know, buttons in, in technology and the internet. Are there some other problems common problems you see that interfere with these experiences with technology? Another big thing is like information overload. Like when you come to a website, when you come to a thing, typically you should have a good idea of what am I doing here? What is this page doing here? What is this thing doing here? 
And what am I going to get out of my time on this website? If you're on an e-commerce website, when you're on a product page, the page is all about this product. If it's a couch, if it's a table, if it's a desk, you are here because you are considering buying this couch table desk. And the page should be structured in a way to help you make a purchasing decision. Are you, are you going to buy this couch table desk? Here are some pictures. Here are some reviews. Here's the price. Here's how soon you'll get it. And the information architecture, the hierarchy of it is so important, especially for individuals with disabilities, with autism or ADHD or other neurodiversities, and then also for individuals with physical disabilities. Let's say you use a screen reader or other assistive technology, and you have to go line by line by line over audio, over a screen uh, narrator, and it's not designed in a way that supports this technology. It's a huge deal. There is There are certain regulations and laws in the United States that govern the how websites need to conform to a series of standards. We call it WCAG, and Wayfair, is, uh, Wayfair where I work, is actively working on our accessibility standards, and it's a huge deal for us. I'm a part of our accessibility working group, which we'll talk about later, but really, I think that one of the biggest other things is like information architecture. How are you going to structure your page in a way that tells people what they need to know in the clearest way possible without bombarding them or overloading their senses? And that's things like auto-playing videos and audio. That's things like multiple columns on a page. That's things like lots of buttons and things to interact with. It really depends on the site. Every site's a little bit different, but in some particular examples, it can get very overwhelming, and some sites do a really good job. Now, you mentioned Mentra earlier, and currently you're the tech and engineering lead at Mentra, uh, and their goal is to create a hiring plat platform for autistic people. Uh, I read by 2025, Mentra aims to have employed 100,000 autistic people, which sounds amazing, but what's the plan to make this happen? Our, one of the biggest things that we're focusing on is engaging with employers and also job seekers and candidates and meaningfully connecting them. Like if you have been on an employment website and you fill out, you, you upload your resume and you put in the same information to resume again. Like that's just, that's annoying and frustrating for anybody, but for individuals with autism and other disabilities, what we really seek to do is provide meaningful information about how these people work, how they do their job, things that they really shine in, things that they maybe don't want to do. And meaningfully put this information in front of recruiters and companies who are actively looking for individuals with these skills and talents, while also being aware of um, areas in which they may struggle or not do their best. Whereas other um, job sites and applications are a little bit clearer cut and less tailored to the individual, where Mentra is different and where we aim to succeed is in, is in adding these different questions and getting this different information from candidates, which says, I excel in these areas that you would never see in a traditional job application. Um, and I don't do so hot in these other areas. And the idea is to connect recruiters and companies to these candidates and say, can, recruiters are gonna ask, I'm looking for candidates who are really excellent in these skills. And it's okay if they're not so great in these areas. That could be things like office environment. If I'm a job seeker and I know for a fact that I don't function well in an open desk environment or um, a cubicle space, whatever it is, I put that on my mentor profile. 
And then a recruiter can come in and say, I'm looking for software engineers. And it's okay if they don't like this environment. And then they'll find individuals who match what they're looking for because they value this kind of talent. And where we really aim to push the needle is connecting employers and recruiters who care about connecting with autistic talent and neurodiverse talent. And then also bridging the gap, which is how autistic individuals are often underemployed or overqualified for roles. If you imagine like the graduate student who is working at a fast food restaurant, they're overqualified for that role, but they can't find employment for someone who meaningfully wants to hire them. Mentra is kind of the same way where we want to connect employers and recruiters who care and are active looking for individuals with these, with these amazing, incredible skill sets with individuals who often have difficulty finding these exact kinds of jobs and opportunities. Now, at Mentra, you manage other engineers. What have you learned along the way that has helped you to be a good manager? One of the biggest things, I think, is how do you enable people to do the best work that they can do? And that varies a lot person to person. So there's no one cookie-cutter way of doing that because everybody works differently. Some people like to be able to tell what they're doing. They just go heads down and focus in on it. Some people like a little more focusing, a little more hand-holding on what's happening. Some people like bouncing it off of other people for feedback and ideas before they go along with it. What I aim to do is really help find the best way that these individuals work. It's not a large team of engineers right now. If that grows in the future, that could very well change. But my biggest thing now is how can I help this individual do their best work that they can do and enable them to succeed? Whether that's answering their questions, whether it's connecting with other individuals, whether that's giving them resources or learning material. What can I do as a tech lead, engineering lead to enable them to do what they can do? Rather than feeling like I'm in their way, I want to be out of their way. I want to sort of pave the road for them to do their thing. My biggest thing about being a tech and engineering lead is enabling each individual to do their best work that they can do. Whether that's um, giving them learning materials or resources, whether that's connecting them to someone who has answers to their question, whether it's just standing standing back and letting them go full power into this problem. Um, Every person is a little bit different. And I think that's really the biggest thing that I've learned is that no two individuals who do work are exactly the same. Some people like just knowing what to do and they go ahead and they do their thing and then it's ready. And some people like a little asking more questions. Some people want to drill deeper. Some people want to get opinions from people outside of engineering to ask questions. How can I sort of help them accomplish their goals? How can I work with them to maximize what they can do and eventually turn that around? And how can they help others do their work too? Like, there's a concept of like a multiplier or a divider in terms of like efficiency and how much work someone can do as an individual. The ultimate goal is that these individuals become multipliers. They wrap, help other people do more work by them being there. And that's the dream state where because I have helped this individual grow and learn, they can now take that knowledge and help others learn and grow as well. I don't have to do anything extra. They know to do this and they're doing it actively. Yeah, it's interesting. I I really identify with a lot you said because, you know, I have to supervise coaches that that, um, I end up up hiring. I never thought I'd be supervising anyone in my life. Um, And uh, so that's been a really interesting process. I always feel like it's my responsibility to help them to become the best they can be and 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 if they don't then then it's my responsibility but i also 
and the one that makes the final decision on if they're hired or not. So I was wondering, how, do you have any input in the hiring process or are you just, are they just, these engineers just hired and then they're just, and then they're just sent to you and you said, saying, Shay, now you got to manage this person. Um, in the beginning, it was, in the beginning, when I was very new to the organization, it was, um, in the beginning, I wasn't the tech lead. I was just another engineer with some of our existing tech leads at the time. Then I inherited the tech lead role when I stepped back. And then I sort of became the technical interviewer for potential and upcoming engineers. And that does mean turning people away. It does mean digging more into details. And that does mean aligning their expectations with our expectations because they may be looking for something else and that's not something that we're best to provide. Yeah. Like right now, right now we're all volunteers in Mensha. We're not doing this for any pay right now. I'm doing this purely on my own time. A lot of people want a paid opportunity or a lot of people don't have the time to commit. And as long as the biggest thing for is just like aligning those expectations. And then once we get beyond that, do they have the skills? The hard skills are honestly easy, but they could have different skills in different technologies that we're not looking for at this time. And that's sometimes easy to solve sometimes it's not. Right now we're looking for like engineers for the web, for full stack, front end, back end engineers and stuff. And some people have a lot of exposure to other technologies, but not this area where we really need people. And I have to turn people away if they don't have the that skills that we need. And then we also and then we have people who check every box and then we get into like the details of like how do you work with other people? How do you um find about mentor and like what is their level of um interest and commitment to what we are aiming to do? Some people see this opportunity as just a line item on a resume, which is okay. But some people really care about the issue at hand with Mensha because they have a personal attachment to it, because they care, because they have an empathy for it, or because they are neurodiverse themselves. It varies for every individual. But I do have a lot, I do have the final say as to who comes in as an engineer. And I have had to turn people away who I didn't think would be the best fit for one reason or another. Sometimes it's a simple answer, sometimes it's a more complicated answer. You also work for Wayfair as a software engineer in which you help to improve upon the experiences for Wayfair's specialty retail brands and international stores. You work with uh, different teams from across Wayfair in order to tailor each part of, of their platform to the unique needs and expectations of, of each store. Managing multiple things in our lives is not easy. So what strategies from maybe an executive functioning point of view help you to make you successful in working with, with different teams and different projects? Prioritization is the biggest thing. When I have to figure out what I'm working on today, I look at my list and I say, what is going to be the thing that I have to send to someone else for them to then do something to, whether it's a code review, whether that's them reading a document, whether that's me getting answers to their answers for questions that I have, what am I going to have to wait on somebody for that I can then do something else in parallel? So I can work on something, I can work on code and then send it to somebody else. And then while I'm waiting for them to do a code review, then I work on something else. And then I just sort of try to arrange my day. I try to arrange what I work on based on what is the most important thing here that I can wait on something to happen almost in parallel. And I do sometimes like it just happens that I get overloaded with things. Sometimes my day is quieter, but 
I found that the parallelization strategy typically works because it's not parallel in the strict sense of the word because I am doing one thing at a time, but it's more about me like waiting on someone for something else and then being able to respond to their question when I have time. So I'll send someone to a code review and then I'll be doing something else. And then while I'm doing that document, they could get back to me with a code review. And I won't immediately jump back to the code. I'll just wait. I'll finish the document, whatever I'm doing, and then I'll go to the code review. But arranging my day based on um, overall importance of what I'm doing and what I can accomplish that doesn't that requires someone else's involvement is important. And I do sprinkle in things that only I can do in there as well, because that's also important, whether that is just a code review or whether that is just a document, whether that's just fixing something. There are some things that only I can do and I don't have to involve anybody else. And those are sometimes pretty easy. It's like changing a setting, changing an alert, fixing something, asking a question. Um, those things also kind of depend on the issue, but it, all, it just depends a lot on the task at hand. But I have found that this prioritization strategy is really effective to me, helping me understand What's, what should I work on next, basically? Once I'm done with the current thing, what should I pivot to now? I use a lot of prioritization as well, so it's definitely a good strategy. Uh, I was wondering, um, in terms of, you know, each store for Wayfair might be, you know, is a little different than the, than the next. So do you see being autistic as an advantage in, in supporting each of these different stores? I do. I think on a broader sense, it helps me in the sense of really zeroing in on a detail and focusing on the answer to a question. Right now I'm working on a project, which is, a, it's a, it seems like a very simple question, but the reality of it is much more complicated, where we're working with another team at Wayfair to fundamentally change a part of their experience, specifically for the specialty in luxury stores. And what I am tasked with doing is addressing a lot of the questions and concerns that they have because it's a pretty big change and they want to make sure that we know what we're doing and that their concerns are addressed before we do this thing. And I spent the last week or so preparing this long request for comment, an RFC, where I put together everything I know. I do a lot of research. I put together a lot of information and I hand this to them and I say, this is basically our blueprint for how we plan to attack this project. Attack's the wrong word, but like how we plan to address and accomplish this task. And it gives them a chance to nitpick at the details, understand our thought process, understand why we're doing this in the first place. And then, then once they're happy, let me go ahead and do it. And I think my autism allows me to really focus in on these things and sometimes find details, find information that might go by someone else that maybe it would take them longer to find. But for the past, before the holidays, I was pretty much heads down and living in this RFC and this request for comment to understand how are we going to make the other team feel happy that they know what we're doing, we, they know what we're doing and that there's no confusion, there's no weirdness and that everyone's on the same page. The last thing we want to do is make a change or embark on this feature and they're left in the dark or that we do something that they're not aware of. And I think because of my autism, I'm able to really go to town on the details. And in this situation, more information is better. And I'm really just impressed with how the document came along. It's so far been well received. And we're just waiting now until after the holiday to really like chew through the details. And then they'll go off and say, 
here are some questions that we have on the process, blah, 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 blah. And then they'll give the green light, and then we'll go ahead and get to work for real. You were talking earlier about um, at times when you might get overwhelmed at work. Are there any specific tasks that cause this overwhelm? Um, I think when I parallel when I parallelize too much, when I take on too much work, and there's a lot of things all coming in at once. Um, when I started the Wayfair um, almost a year and a half ago, a year and a quarter, three quarters ago, um, I made the mistake of ticking on a couple tickets at once. And it was my first time ever doing this. I just got bombarded with information and stuff all at once. And I really had to like, like chip away at each individual task first, a little at a time. And it just, it took longer for me to do all of those things in parallel than it would have taken for me to do them one by one by one. And that definitely was a source of stress for me earlier, earlier on. And I've since learned not to take too much on that I think would just be stressful. And another part of that is also delegating and shifting work to somebody else if there's too much on my plate. I think something that I fell over in the path and which I'm trying to get better at now is like trusting someone else to do something the way that I would do it. I typically believe that everybody has the best intentions and that everybody is going to do something to the best of their ability and they're not trying to do the wrong thing. Historically, like a long time ago, I had a hard time reconciling that. I would want to do it my way because I know I'll do it the best way I can do it. But lately I've realized that everyone else is doing the same thing. They want to do the best job that they can do. And it's okay to like let go of something you want to do because you have to have faith that they will do the best job that they can do and they will get it done. It might not be done the way you want it to get done, I mean, I got done the way that you thought it should have gotten done, but it will still get done. Everybody will still be happy. The problem <laughs> right. will be fixed. The feature will be done, whatever it is. And at the end of the day, it just means less weight on your shoulders. I learned that lesson, like, over the past couple of years. I think it's been super important to just sort of let go of those attachments, so to speak. No matter how badly you want to put more on your plate, it's more effective for me to be really good at a couple of things or we do a really good job at handling a couple of tasks than it is for me to be spread out so thin as to not do a really good job at all of them. It's like jack of all trades, master of few. I would rather be really focused in and honing in on a couple different tasks and problems at a time rather than dealing with a universe of problems and not be able to adequately keep track of every little detail going on at the exact same time. That is very difficult to keep track of every last little detail. Uh, I still struggle with it with like a small number of things going on at a time, but it's certainly much less to deal with once I just sort of put a clamp on the number of things I'm doing. Like on my first year at Wayfair, like I was working on a pretty big project and my product manager came up to me and said, hey, do you want to be the lead for this other thing? And I remember it very vividly because I said, I have a lot on my plate right now. But this other engineer who is looking for something to do, looking for ways to grow, would love to do this. And then he ended up leading it and did a great job. So there was like a couple of things. Number one, I knew that if I was going to do it, I would just be super stressed thin. And number two, I wanted to give this them the opportunity to really lead something and take it on because they hadn't had that yet. Okay. So it's as much as me shifting shifting weight of my shoulders as it is to give someone else a chance to shine in this particular case everybody should be allowed to grow and i think one thing that i've also been guilty of is maybe unintentionally shining over people and sort of shifting people's perspectives towards me unintentionally i've tried to step away from that recently where not that i like hold back 
but more that I make sure that other people are given the chance to succeed and given the same opportunities that I have, so I don't feel like I'm hogging the spotlight. Well, I think that's a smart thing that you did in that situation because you're solving the problem but by referring it to someone who you think can solve it, but but you're but it's also not putting more on your plate and maybe too much on your plate. I want to make sure that I can meaningfully do the best work that I can do that I have in front of me. And I feel like if I just start juggling more and more and more stuff, I have to like watch every little thing that juggles. Like I have a friend who's an incredible juggler and I see him do his juggling. I'm like, holy moly, how do you do all of this? And it's like that. It's like juggling 10 things in your hand at once. And I'm like, I can't do that. I literally cannot do that. And even at work, I can juggle a couple of things at once, but I know if I take something more on, it's just going to be stressful. It's just, it's not going to be what I want to do if I want to make sure I get what's on my plate done first. And once I clear out my plate, then I can say what's next. But even today, I still have the, the temptation to take on stuff while my plate isn't empty yet. Now, on your personal website, um, you say on there that you're doing cool things one pixel at a time. So I, I was wondering, is there anything cool that you're doing right now that we haven't talked about today? Digitally, no. Those are the biggest things. The only other thing that's pretty cool that I did recently was I ran a marathon. I was a New Year's, resol New Year's resolution. I made it before everything happened with the pandemic. I just said, I'm going to run a marathon. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care if I'm like physically exhausted afterwards. I'm going to run a marathon and get it over with. And I did. I ran it a couple weeks ago. My girlfriend was there. She really helped me out. Got me water, ran with some of it with me. She was incredible. And I ran it in like six hours. I ran Great. I ran for five. My breaks or like stops or whatever totaled an hour in general. I was just that exhausted. The first half of the marathon was fine. I've done halves before. Those aren't super bad. They're, they're tiring. Don't get me wrong. But like I was doing fine for the first half. And then I go for the next quarter of it. And then at the last six miles, your body just hits a wall. Like, <laughs> your, your body is like, I can't go anymore. My mind's like, yes, you can. Like, you don't have to run. You can just like jog. But you have to keep going. You have to hit 26.2 miles. It was just such a physically exhausting sensation. Probably like the most physically exhausting feeling I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> it felt really good afterwards, like seeing it on Strava. Um, I use an app Strava to record runs and stuff. It's like a social network recorder thing. I don't know how to mm -hmm. describe it, but it's on Strava. And just seeing it like, whoa, like my pace was pretty good. It was like 11 minutes and, oh, 11 minutes and 17 seconds a mile. It was just really good. And it was just so exhausting. But my next new resolution is to get my time to under four hours if I can. Um, I have other running related goals as well, but that's the chief among them. Just like get my time my running time to under four hours considered like good. Anyone who runs a marathon is really good, but I'm trying to get better at it. Well, I love hearing that because I've run eight marathons myself. What? Yep. And the, the, the number one thing is just to finish. So just, you know, just hearing that, that that's awesome. And so it sounds like you already had somewhat of a, a base to of training because you had run half marathons before then. Yeah, I'd run halves in the past. The longest one I'd done before that was like 
20 miles. And that was the point where I just felt exhausted. I was like, I'm tapping out for now. And again, like once that, once I got past 20 miles, like only moly, like this is a lot. This is physically exhausting. I had water, I had snacks, I had support and stuff. I ran in Boston. I ran like all along the river and back, which is a little under 26.2 miles. So I had to like make some extra like loops or whatever. But it was just such an incredibly exhausting sensation. Also, because like, you know how far you've run, but you don't know how much you have left too. And just like waiting to, waiting to finish, waiting to just be able to stop it and just collapse and just be like, I'm done, it's over. Mm-hmm. My parents got me the ultimate training guide for marathons by Hal Higdon. Yes, I read, I read that. So I'm going to be following that this coming year to get a training plan together for me to run another marathon. That is an old school training guide for sure, and uh, but it works. I mean, I'm, I'm new to all this stuff, so if you have recommendations for something I should be doing instead for a different book, totally let me know because I'm open to anything. Well, I definitely have recommendations. We could talk uh, afterwards. Um, I don't know if people would want to hear our two-hour conversation on running. (laughs) One last question I do have, though. Um, I've done over 100 episodes now uh, of Autism Stories, and I believe you are the first person that I've talked to who is a national ski patrol. So... Uh, what exactly are the responsibilities of someone who is a national ski patrol, and how did you get involved in that? So if you've ever been skiing or snowboarding, if you've ever fallen on the hill hard, you've hurt yourself, you've bumped into somebody, or you've bumped into, into something else, um, the men and women in red, it depends on the resort. Actually, on my mountain, they're red and white, but I, other people, they're all black. It kind of depends, but I'm going with red for now. They are the ski patrollers. They will check in on you, how are you doing, can you stand, what hurts, and they will take you off the hill when you're in the first aid. Um, we're really like first first line responders if people are injured, if they can't get down, if they hit someone, if they hit something, if something else is wrong, they are the front line of safety on the mountain. I have been a ski patroller for two years. This season I'm taking a break just because of COVID and because of travel regulations are hard. I live in Massachusetts, and I normally patrol in New York. So going back and forth and also abiding by all the travel regulations is just a little bit difficult and complicated. So I'm just deciding to not really get into those weeds for in the interest of safety and the interest of just abiding by all the regulations. But when I'm normally patrolling, really the biggest responsibility is to make sure that like everyone in the mountain is safe, everyone in the mountain is having fun, and that if you come across somebody who is in need of help and assistance, you provide that. Like, hey, I'm a ski patrol. What's wrong? My arm hurts. Can you put weight on it? No. Um, can you hold your pole if you're a skier? No. Okay. And then, like, if we need to immobilize the arm with a sling and swath for a cast, we will apply the necessary preventative treatments to prevent it from getting worse on the hill. We'll call for a sled to bog it, and they'll bring it some, another partner from up top will bring it down, or then we'll bring it down in the first aid. In the first aid, they'll apply more meaningful medical treatment, whether it's giving them, like, an actual cast addressing the injury, providing referrers, whenever medical center. Most of the injuries that we see are typically pretty straightforward and not super bad. I have seen some less pleasant experiences where people are more badly hurt. Sometimes they go out in an ambulance. Sometimes they go out in a helicopter. In exceptional circumstances, sometimes they don't even make it that far, um, which is extremely rare. But it has happened where individuals have passed away on the hill, but those are extremely far and few in between. Last year we didn't have any of that, but one year we might have a couple deaths. 
really our focus on the Hill is to, if someone is in need, figure out what's wrong, how can we help them, how can we stop it from getting worse, and then how we need to transport them to the next level of care. Um, and sometimes that means uh, going in an ambulance to a hospital. Sometimes that means going into a helicopter if an ambulance is too slow. Where I, where I go to patrol in, is in the mountains in the Catskills of New York. So getting in and out of there is not super easy. And if somebody has life-threatening injuries, we will call a helicopter and they will fly them to Albany. And that's just much faster than, the, than an ambulance. But, the, but yeah, really we're the, the, the front line face of the mountain. If someone has questions, if someone... Lost is someone lost a kid, lost a phone, lost anything, lost lost their mind. We're there for them. It sounds like there can certainly be some kind of crisis situations that um, occur. I'm, I'm wondering how does like being in the, those types of situations have maybe helped you in other areas of your life? Well, this is actually an interesting parallel because when I, I wasn't a patrol when I was at Cornell, but I had to, I had tried to be a patroller in the past before I was at Cornell. I was really young, I was immature, so I didn't make it the first time. But what I learned, I sort of carried with me throughout. It actually really applies to my work life in other ways. And when there's a time of, when there's a moment of crisis, when there's a moment where the chips are down, when people are like running around with their hair on fire, like someone has to come in and say, here's what we're gonna do, here's how we're gonna make this better, let's get it done. So this actually happened to me um, at Wayfair. This happened to me where I was in Wayfair for a couple of months, um, and over the summer, one of the, te- one of the leaders on our team was let go from the company. And they were responsible for this very large project. And they were originally tapped to do it. And people were sort of confused and concerned, like, who's going to do this big thing? So I stepped up and I said, I'm going to get this done. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never done this before, but I'm going to figure it out. And we're going to make it happen. And it's going to be better than nobody doing it. And I did. Like, at the end of the day, I ended up leading that project it got done pretty much on time, um, and I was able to just sort of like sit down, figure everything out, figure out what this individual had left behind, organize the details, and then pursue with the success of this project. And I ended up working out. It was my first time ever doing it. But it's that moment of crisis when people are like, somewhat, someone has to just sort of like wrangle the cows, get, get everybody all on the same page, and then go forward. And I, was, I learned that from Sea Patrol, because... When it's a life or death situation, when somebody is in medical danger and they need, you need to know what is going to save their life, whether it's CPR, whether it's applying a kind of traction switch, whether it's doing something to stop the bleeding, you have to know in this moment, what are you going to do to save their life? It's stressful, but when there's a million things happening at once, which especially affects people like me, I have to be able to like really zero in on that one thing that's going to save their life, or maybe it's multiple things. Whether it's recognizing the signs of a stroke, recognizing the signs of an imminent of a heart attack, or recognizing that person's unconscious and needs CPR. I've never had this happen to me before, but I have come across like a scene, a situation where CPR was in progress, and when that happens, you have to recognize that this person is unconscious; they are not breathing, and you have to call it in, saying, "We call it." Code blue in my resort. Code blue means unconscious patient. CPR is in progress. And you begin CPR. And when you call a code blue over a radio, everyone shows up. <laughs> Everybody who is really capable of showing up and hears your call are coming. And they are going to come in really hard and fast. So you have, you have to be ready to tell them what to do to save this person's life. 
and I have I have been with a patroller. I have been like the number two on a scene when they made this call, and just it's basically getting barked at, like getting told what to do. You are not asked to do this; you are told to do this. Whether it's preparing oxygen, whether it's getting a sled ready, you are being told to be part of this great machine in people's minds. And you don't have time to argue or just say I want to do something else. You have to just do it because this is life and death, and it's hectic and it's stressful. But at the end of the day. You're saving people's lives. Well, well, Shay, I'm really thankful for the conversation. And um, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Doug. I'm super excited we got to talk today. Have a happy holiday and happy new year. Thanks to everyone for listening. And thanks so much to Shay for the conversation. To learn more about Shay, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. You can also find a link to book a free call to learn how Autism Personal Coach can help you reduce your daily overwhelm and help you get the things you need. So book a call with me today. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will have a conversation about being an autistic parent. Talk to you then.